1666, a young Isaac Newton was inspired by an apple falling from a tree to develop his theory of universal gravitation. In 1958, Ingvar Kamprod had a revolutionary idea for modular furniture when he watched as a customer's table was dismantled to fit into a car. This became the brainchild for Ikea, and in 1964, Paul McCartney dreamt up the melody for one of the most famous songs ever written, Yesterday. These stories illustrate the power of the aha moment when life-altering ideas are born from seemingly mundane situations. Moments such as these are ones of sudden realization, inspiration, insight, recognition, or comprehension. It's often described as the proverbial light bulb going off in one's head and can be experienced both in the physical and mental realms. Though these moments are fleeting and hard to define, they can have powerful implications for one's life. In the late 1960s, Dr. Andrew Barge Schmuckler had a profound aha moment that propelled him to embark on an ambitious journey. He set out to discover why humans inflict destruction upon each other and uncover an integrative vision of civilization from its inception, exploring our aggressive impulses, questioning if we are inherently predisposed towards power or have been forced into it by circumstance. It was this pursuit for understanding what he believed held the key to future survival of human society that led him to his integral mission today. Throughout history, there have been many forms of human society, ranging from tribes to chiefdoms to kingdoms and states, each varying in the size of the population, the structure of the socio-political organization, and the technologies, customs, and beliefs associated with them. However, this power also carries a sobering realization. Unless we gain mastery over our history and collective behavior, our society may be heading towards self-annihilation. Will humans keep advancing or will they fall? This is the question at the heart of Dr. Schmuckler's July essay for Three Quarks Daily, The Fate of Human Civilization. And according to him, it's a toss-up and the time for understanding our nature is now. Andy and I recently discussed this conundrum, exploring its implications for humanity's future and we delved into the depths of this pressing matter, coming away with fresh insights and plenty left to ponder. But find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Dr. Andy Bard Schmuckler with Jay Burke Show. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Cool, strange but not a stranger. I'm Burke, and no, I'm technically the host of this podcast. It's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. With us today is Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler, PhD, a prize-winning author, former Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's very red Shenandoah Valley a former talk show radio host, summa cum laude, graduate of Harvard University, a PhD awarded with distinction in a program specially created to accommodate his original theory explaining how civilization has developed, and a frequent columnist in newspapers all around the globe. Andy, welcome back to the program. 
Well, thank you. I, I hope you'll find my mind curious. Yeah, I hope so. There are two sets of meanings about curious minds. Oh, yeah. You know, like strange is one of them. <laughs> and wanting to know is the other, so. I probably fall, well, yeah, I want to know mostly. But yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by the strange. I don't, I wouldn't deny that. So we're here today to have a conversation centered around your debut piece on Three Quarks Daily, which is the first of a series of essays to present the integrative vision of the human story that has been your life's work. And this piece was called The Fate of Human Civilization. So how long had you been going about putting that piece together? Well, it's kind of hard to answer that because the whole visionary project began in 1970 with the idea that I call the parable of the tribes, which isn't in the piece here. But in some ways, it's derived from it. It's been an exciting time for me to go back into ideas that change the course of my life. So that's going to be my latest way of talking about what I saw in 1970. But that's been something I've been working with, have resumed working with recently. And this piece feels like new material that's derived from it. It's somewhat in the sense that a mathematician might talk about you know, we can derive, if you start with this formula, X, you know, all this stuff equals all that stuff, you can, by a set of processes, infer some other things. And that's what's in this fate of human civilization. Because the idea that changed my life had to do with the consequences of beginning the civilizational process back 10,000 years ago. Whereas this one's looking forward, mostly, I mean, some of it goes back, but it's looking forward to are we going to make it? We, the civilization creating creatures on this planet, are we going to survive for the long haul? That's what this piece is about. And, and that's kind of a new set of thoughts. Yeah. So the way you explain it, it kind of reminds me of an author who updates his work every 15 years or so to make it, to catch up with the times. Because things change, obviously, and circumstances are going to be different, you know, every decade or could change month to month, year to year. Well, this, this stuff isn't of the, you know, updating quality because what I talk about there is our situation. And our situation was an inevitable byproduct of stepping onto the path of civilization. So I say any creature uh, anywhere on the, in the cosmos that takes that step is going to face the kind of challenges that I'm saying we need to meet now. Well, can I step back and let's go in the time machine real quick? Um, oh, yeah, I like time travel. <laughs> let's go. Where do you want to go? Well, I actually just want to go back to you for a second. I know you said you came up with this in starting in the 70s. What was the catalyst that gave you the, the idea of your life's work? Well, I graduated from college in 1967. My life seemed like it was laid out before me. A variety of things happened. A little bit personal, like the death of my father shaking up my world. But the world was getting shaken up fairly fundamentally, uh, say, in 1968, when I, when the Tet Offensive and it showed that the war in Vietnam was what it was, when I got my draft notice, when Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated, when I threw myself into the campaign of 68 to end the war in Vietnam, if I could, working for Eugene McCarthy, 
Bobby Kennedy, Winston in California and gets assassinated that night. We've got the Soviet tanks rolling in into Prague to crush the Prague Spring. We got the Chicago Convention, which radicalized me a lot. And, you know, I thought I knew where my life was going. But if the world was as out of joint as I saw it then to be, which was a surprise to me, more or less, I didn't know what made sense for me to do. I, I was stuck with this question of what is all this destructiveness about? And I felt like I didn't know what I could do with my life if fitting into a world out of joint didn't make sense anymore because it was out of joint. Then what could I do? Why was the world so destructive and tormented as I then saw it to be? I, I wrestled with that question for two or three years. So that's, in a sense, the catalyst. I was supposed to be on the path to achievement, but I had to figure something out. And there was a moment in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, and I suddenly saw something which explained why the world was as destructive as it was. And it also gave me an assignment, which I promised to do my best to fulfill. Didn't realize how difficult that was going to be. Difficult, both in terms of how to articulate what I had seen about what was driving things in this destructive way, but also difficult in that the world was not going to make it easy for me if that's what I was going to do. I mean, I think, you know, one of the major points of the article is that we're not paying attention anymore, right? Or we're not paying attention enough that there's this possibility of, of global self-destruction, but it's only a recent phenomenon. Do you think yeah, it's, it's because yeah. it's so recent? that humans don't see it in the in the future or the near future? I regard it, this is just a gut feeling. I, I'm not putting down money in Las Vegas. I regard it as a toss-up, whether human civilization is going to destroy itself or whether we're going to get our act together. It, it's going to be one or the other. It's not going to be just more of the muddling through. But anyway, if that's the case, one question I have is, how many people care? Not um, enough. They probably care whether, you know, we all blow ourselves up, you know, over Ukraine or something, or Taiwan. Anyway, we got issues of uh, nuclear superpowers that are confronting each other in, in a hostile way. I don't think we're about to blow ourselves up, but I expect that most people would care if they thought that was going to happen. I lived through the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and we were looking at that possibility for a while. But how many people care? Whether this beautiful blue marble we got here and this civilization that we've created that produces things that we care about, you know, I don't know what people all care about, but all this stuff that we've created, how many people really care whether we make it? I don't know the answer. That's a real question I've got, but I care. Yeah. So why are we not thinking about it? Well, partly it's because we're the heirs of a history in which the possibility that we might destroy ourselves isn't deeply built into the culture and the ways of thinking that we come out with. I mean, partly we've evolved without that power. We had in the Cold War, we had to uh, transcend the nature we were born with, where if you get angry, you, you make a fist and hit somebody with it. We couldn't afford to do that in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But partly it's because it's within the lifetime of the older people alive today that the two main ways we might destroy ourselves came into existence as a visible possibility. 
the Manhattan Project, you know, the people who are in their 80s were alive yeah. during that. The people who were in their 90s, you know, were conscious uh, when the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And even more new is the discovery of um, the possibility that we might destroy ourselves through our environmental being a bull in the china shop with the uh, you know climate change how bad is it going to be we have a long history of a civilization that didn't have to look at we might destroy ourselves i mean we could have terrible wars whole cities could be put to the sword people got pretty worked up about the dangers that world war 1 showed but it was a gradual process and we don't know how to integrate our newfound powers fully with the way we think about the future and our responsibility. I would agree with that. I think it's also something you said too, right? So the younger generation, we had our our history handed down to us. We didn't really live through that history. So our grandparents who lived through World War One, World War Two, and Hiroshima and, and, you know, the threat of Russia, which is, you know, sort of back, but it's not really, I don't know if people are concerned enough about that, which, which is another topic. They but, still got plenty of nukes. Well, that, I'm concerned about it. I was concerned oh, okay. about it as soon as it happened, but I don't think people, people are weak. They were concerned about it. And then it seems like it went away, but maybe we just haven't been through enough in this generation to really appreciate what we can do. Yeah, I don't know. In, in some ways, uh, the people who've grown up, say, in the last 30 years, and the, I guess a lot of your coming of age is during that period, I think are uh, have had to endure more bad news than my generation did. Yeah. I mean, there was plenty wrong in America, for example, in the, in the 50s, you know, McCarthyism and the whole segregation problem that was pretty ugly. But I, I was born in 46, I, you know, a year after FDR died, and he's ranked, let's say, the second best president we ever had. And Harry Truman was next, and he's ranked like, I think, uh, seventh best or mm. 11th best. He and Eisenhower were high ranked. So we had the experience of we're a society that can grapple with problems and make progress on them. Yeah. Um, I think your generation has seen a more dysfunctional America. Yeah. Uh, and just talking about America now, and you know, uh, Madeleine Albright called us the, the world's indispensable nation. Mm -hmm. And I buy into that to a certain degree because um, uh, it seems like when humankind makes progress, the United States generally has to play a leadership role. I haven't seen a whole lot of progress in which America was just on the sidelines or working against it. So uh, the idea that we had a, country that could make progress, become a better country, make collective decisions that made us better. That was a real gift that I took for granted. You know, of course, it's going to be, be better, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but you know, we've got, uh, I, I don't know why all the, there are a lot of reasons why the challenge that we face, that we have to meet in order for human civilization to survive, there are a lot of reasons why people don't grab hold of it the way it needs to be grabbed hold of. You know, like Giuliani says, you know, why should I care about posterity? I'll be dead. That's, I was going to make a point about that before, yeah. So there, there may be a lot of people who feel that way, you know. You know, but 
you know, I look at people with their grandchildren. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't seem all that concerned, but you see them, how they feel about their grandchildren. They whip out their pictures of their grandchildren. Well, those are the people who are going to suffer. I mean, put two and two together. I don't claim to have insight into the minds of uh, 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 of the people of our times. Yeah. Uh, I do claim to see the dynamics at work in civilization that need to be grappled with. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say inequity probably plays a role in that with people who are just focused on day-to-day life. It's very, very difficult to see the big picture when you're living day-to-day. And, and also when you've evolved. Not to need to see any picture that's bigger than your your little group. That's true too. Uh, I'm, we're we're still basically the same creatures that got born into Stone Age societies that may have had language and tools and f- control of fire, but they were basically still living like hunting gathering, like primate bands that we had emerged out of. So we have expanded our powers into making ourselves very different from those hunter-gatherers in terms of our powers, but we have to transcend something about what for eons we have been. Yeah, I, and, and any creature that evolves biologically in a niche that's just part of the fabric of life on whatever planet is going to have to make a considerable adjustment in how they think. They may be creatively intelligent enough to embark upon this thing that we've done over the last 10 or 12,000 years, you know, domesticating plants and animals and all kinds of creative things that we've done since. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to adjust to the new world that we create, Yeah, particularly because of that insight that I had in 1970, that the world that we create isn't necessarily a world that we're freely choosing because we've unleashed a force. You know, but that's next week's piece. You know? <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Today we're talking about, uh, you know, are we going to make it? Yeah. But I think that's, an, I can't wait to read that piece because I think uh, freedom of choice or freedom, and I won't get too, too off this topic, but a lot of people talk about that, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. You're kind of the victim of circumstance, more or less. Yeah. You have thoughts and you have actions you can take, but you're really a victim of whatever has been put in front of you. The, the well, what I say is, uh, you know, again, this is next to the next piece, but I, I kind of foreshadow it, but I talk about, you know, I define civilization as the societies created when a creature extricates itself from the niche in which it evolved biologically by inventing its own way of life. And that's an unprecedented thing in the history of life. Yeah. Being in the niche in which you evolve biologically is what everything's had to be in, including us up until, I mean, except for fairly minor changes. I mean, controlling fire is no small thing. You get to cook your food. You get to have a bigger brain. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. But basically, we hadn't invented our own way of life. We were still in the niche in which we'd evolved biologically for the most part. But I say that when the creature extricates itself from that niche, puts itself into an unprecedented situation in which there's no order there. The interactions among these invented societies are not regulated by an evolutionarily determined set of patterns like the, the way I put it, the lion and the, and the zebra and the grass 
work together to create a perpetual motion machine, even as they devour each other. It's not just our bodies that get selected. It's whole sets of relationships and interactive patterns. But when you start leaving that biologically evolved pattern, you enter into an anarchy, which means there's going to be a war of all against all. And so I preview where I'm going next. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a problem of war. That problem of war over time can evolve into what we see now, which is a nuclear holocaust is a possibility. And if you extricate yourself out of that niche in which you evolve biologically, where the interactive patterns have been selected by a process which is continually choosing life, what can survive over what cannot, then we also have the possibility of a, a creature that's going to be destructive ecologically. From the beginning, we've got a problem, but it doesn't become a problem of destroying ourselves utterly until our powers have grown to a certain point. Yeah. When you talk about nuclear war and then people just going about their day-to-day -day business, funny, I did a, a solo, my first solo episode I did on, on Ukraine, the situation when it, was, when it was first happening. And I remember sitting there and I, I said something in it, like people are just going around acting like a nuclear holocaust isn't a, a remote possibility here. Um, and, I, and I worry about stuff like that because I think Russia invading Ukraine could have also set off a stealthy nuclear arms race. Right? I mean, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. This is kind of getting out of the topic here, but Ukraine gives up its nuclear weapons when in the 90s or, or whatever it was. Yeah, as, as the Soviet Union was, was breaking yeah. up into the Ukraine, Russia, right. Kazakhstan, and all yeah. the rest. Then we have an invasion on a scale that hasn't been performed since World War II. And what it shows to other countries is, why would I not want to be armed? Because one, you have protection, and then two... You can be a bad actor like Russia, because if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, yeah, yeah, if they didn't we, have the deterrent, the whole world would have already taken them out. We saw that with, uh, you know, the North Koreans looked at what happened to Saddam Hussein, who yeah. wanted nuclear weapons. But, you know, the North Koreans saw, you know, if you don't have nukes, then the big boys can uh, do what they want with you, more or less. Yeah. But if you do have nukes, yeah, it's... It's it's true. I think that Putin has blundered terribly with this invasion, oh, yeah. but the full disaster of it has not yet come yeah. fully home to roost. Yeah. But the point uh, I would make is, if we don't transform to have a world that's organized such that something like the Cuban Missile Crisis can just keep on happening, people who've analyzed the Cuban Missile Crisis believe it could have gone really, really badly. Yeah, I do recommend that movie, 13 Days, because it, it's kind of nice to see how Bobby Kennedy and JFK and not Curtis Lee May and Khrushchev on the other side found a way out of the confrontation. But if we keep, it could have gone the other way. And it was like playing Russian roulette to let that kind of event keep on happening. But this kind of thing can keep on happening. Whether or not we have nuclear proliferation, as you were suggesting, you know, people might say, oh, wow, it would be good to have nukes and then we could get away with invading our neighbors or something. We cannot afford to keep on playing Russian roulette. Eventually, if somebody keeps on spinning the chamber and pulling the trigger, 
what can happen will happen. So we, one of the part of the challenge is between now and when it would be too late, we got to create a world in which that can't happen. We cannot have a confrontation between nuclear superpowers that can spin out of control. So we got to envision what would it look like, a world in which that can't happen. And how do we get there? Wasn't Jimmy Carter one of, didn't he have some kind of study where he was looking into that in the White House? Am I wrong about that? I thought I said. I, I don't know if you're wrong or not. I, I tried to get, he had a group that was uh, studying, uh, was very concerned about the future. Yeah. Uh, they, they were, ba- they were in a little building on the side of uh, Lafayette Square. And I was trying to get it to be part of that group, but they didn't have any openings and I didn't get it. But I don't know what all they were working on. But the idea about the future and then the need to look to the future has been part of who I've been for a long time. And I don't know if uh, Carter was asking that particular question, but, you know, when the world had a cataclysm in the, that led to the deaths of millions in World War I, people said, well, how can we be, do it differently? And they came up with the League of Nations. And that, that was not a particularly happy story, but you don't get there in one step anyhow. Yeah. As World War II was going on, FDR was very eager to create the United Nations. They created the United Nations, but, you know, they created it such that the five major powers in the world would all have veto power over anything the United Nations could actually do. So it was a compromise between, you know, we're a powerful nation. We don't want to surrender our power to anybody, which is understandable. And we got to reorganize the world, which we do. And that compromise, uh, you know, doesn't get us there. Getting us there is not going to be easy. But if you look at the uh, Russian roulette problem and you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and the two two things we got going on right now, and you say, we can't just keep on having this happen because eventually what can happen will happen and we'll blow it. Yeah. So it's not going to be easy, but we got to work toward it. Do you feel like populism, which is pretty much on the rise worldwide, is a huge roadblock to trying to, let's say, organize civilization in this way? Well, I used to think populism was a good thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little confused because, you know, when I grew up, populist, populism was like Senator La Follette from wow. Wisconsin, you know. Oh, he was a good guy. He was a populist. But nowadays, it almost it seems like it means fascism. Yeah, and because I think the... That's what I think I is I think the actors using it are using populism as a cover for fascism you know it's like america first or something of that nature which listen it's these things are like you said there's there is definitely something attractive about you know we're going to take care of our ourselves first and then worry about is that inherent to what populism is that you know america first is that well i'm saying it's a i i don't think that's exactly what populism is but i think it's been co-opted into yeah maybe so fascism you know that's definitely a problem i think the fascist um, the fascist impulse the fascist regimes the fascist spirit uh from mussolini to hitler to franco trump putin the the spirit in britain that gave us brexit uh the spirit in france that uh you know the anti-immigrant you know white nationalists christian nationalists if that's what we're talking about, yes. it, we've seen that. And, and I think it's there's a force that 
acts a lot like what people used to call evil. I I define evil as a coherent force that consistently spreads a pattern of brokenness. I think fascism is a is one of the embodiments of that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, a kindred thing to the tyrannies that arose in the, na- in the ancient world that led to a, a powerful few enslaving the many, waging wars of conquest. Both the fascism and of the uh, first half of the 20th century and the tyrannies of the ancient world, I think they, uh, the, they have a great deal of kinship, and I do think that that's a problem. You know... Th- in terms of populism, I, I used to have more confidence in the uh, judgment of the American people uh, than I do now. I've seen how propaganda wielded by fascists can take people and bring out the worst in them. But, you know, the worst in people isn't all that there is to them. You know, I was on a family trip and I was hiking in the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina. And my w- wife and I ran to a couple uh, on the trail. And we sort of stopped in our tracks because he looked familiar to me and I looked familiar to him. And I don't know why, because we, we ascertained fairly quickly that our paths probably had never, ever crossed. And he's from South Carolina. He, he wasn't from the Shenandoah Valley. Anyway, but our conversation quickly showed that he was steeped in a certain kind of Christian worldview, which I found quite lovely in the context of our conversation. He said, you know, uh, even though we didn't know each other, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, that's not language I would have used, but I believe something like that. Yeah. Anyway, it was we both left the, this encounter that we had for about five minutes on the trail feeling that, uh, you know, something positive had happened between us, you know, a certain uh, heart level feeling of goodness. But, you know, I'd be very surprised if you didn't vote for Trump. You know, I live among people, sometimes I have really good contact with, who are on the other side of the political divide. And that political divide, as I see it right now, has these good people supporting something which is the opposite of good. Yeah. My point is, you can have leaders that bring out the best in people, and you can have leaders that bring out the, the worst in people. And this guy had a lot of best in him, as far as I can tell. And the question is, if we're going to have a populist movement, which means, I guess, some kind of faith that the will of the American people should be ex- executed by the powers that run America, I, I believe that. But with certain provisos, now that I've seen a substantial chunk of the American people can be led into a very dark place. Yeah. So I looked up populism just to bring bring it up to you. What do you got? uh, The dictionary says that it's a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Which I understand the meaning of that. I mean, there's a lot of articles that are talking about populism being yeah. used at the core of fascism as well. Um, but it's not, in theory, it's not, a, like you said, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, and it, it is a tendency in human societies for power to gravitate toward the, the few. Yeah. You know, one of the great things about America is our founding fathers working to create, you know, within a lot of limits, it's true, but but it was still a, a huge step toward saying, you know, government exercises its powers justly 
only with the consent of the people. And so, you know, the populism of of the 19th century had to do with the rise of an elite as the corporate powers mushroomed in power, you know, with the, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Vanderbilts and, you know, all those great corporate powers that were controlling the government, yep. that were purchasing the power to create a Supreme Court that would prevent ordinary people in the working class from organizing and preventing farmers from being uh, getting a just return for their the crops that they grew. You know, that was what gave rise to populism then. And it was quite legitimate yeah. in that there was a need to get power back in the hands of people. But, you know, right now, the populism uh, that was, you know, Limbaugh and Gingrich and Fox News, that's being wielded by the very people who are exploiting them. Yeah, I totally so, agree. You know, you know, there's no magic. Yeah. But if you don't want to have a, a situation like we got now where tens of millions of people believe lies, the whole idea of the Constitution with freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of the press is the truth is going to prevail. Yeah. Lies are doing so well with the populism of this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the populism, I mean, I guess it's rooted in something. This went to a different topic, but um, where people feel like there's not equity of opportunity and the forces that be realize that, but they've wielded it to increase their own power so that, well, it's bringing up, like you said, a, a fascistic way of uh, ruling. And that's all that this is about. A lot of it is just you can see it in in the government right now. It's there are things that Americans agree on every time they take a poll, right? And whether it's you know some kind of gun legislation or not totally restricting abortion, there, there's a compromise to be made there between yeah. people, and somehow. We haven't got to the compromise, even if 70, 80% of people agree. So the power is being wielded by, I think, bad actors who just want to stay in power. Now, have they used, I don't know, they might have used the Christian right at this point. And like I said, this is a topic off uh, script, but I feel like once the 70s and 80s and the, the Christian right vote became important to the Republican Party. It changed the whole dynamic just because it's easier to make people like that follow a leader as opposed to questioning that leader. And you've said this in prior episodes too. Well, in terms of fascism, you know, I just read a piece uh, today by George Will about violence is a, an intrinsic part of fascism. He does. He talks about Mussolini and he talks about Putin. But beyond that, there's a question you know, Christianity is born under the banner, the angels say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yeah. But when fascism melds itself with Christianity, it turns it on its head. I asked somebody recently, well, you know, it's true that a lot of people have got some legitimate grievances. And it's true that, for example, the Democratic Party is not as fully wedded to the interests of the working people as it was back in, you know, the early when when organized labor was powerful. Yeah. Um, but what sense does it make that people who are feeling that frustration that the elites are not tending to their interests and values well enough? 
that they then turn to support the people who are doing the most to exploit them. I mean, if you look at who, the interests of working people at every place where the political process engages on, on a minimum wage or on uh, the National Labor Relations Board or any of those issues that, uh, you know, the Republican Party is the party that's opposed to the interests of the working people. I live in a right-to-work state, you know, a a complete misnomer. I mean, it's a right to be paid 15% less because organized labor doesn't have the power in your state than it does in some other state. I mean, the evidence is clear. So the answer I got was, well, people can get into a frame of mind where what they care about in their leaders is that they hate the people that they hate. So goodwill toward men is a great recipe for a better world. We who have different interests, if we come together in goodwill, can come up with a solution that's better for everybody than if we come up toward each other in hatred. Fascism feeds hatreds. In answer to your question, if we're not talking about populism, if we're talking about fascism, Fascism feeds hatreds. Immigrants, people of a different race, people of a different religion. So if we are going to meet our challenge to get our civilization together in a way that means that we will be able to endure for the long haul, that this experiment that life has conducted with us as a species that steps out of the biologically evolved system but has the ability to create a new kind of order that's not biologically evolved, but is created by the creatures themselves. We need to have that peace on Earth that doesn't lead to a nuclear holocaust. We need to have that goodwill toward men or toward other people that allows us to resolve our differences in a peaceful way. And we need to organize what we do on this planet in a way that doesn't undermine the ecological systems on which we depend for our survival as well. That's what we need. And fascism is the enemy of all that. But one thing in that piece we haven't touched upon, if that's helpful for me to... Yeah. Is that the fantasy I have of the cosmic... Oh, yeah, I like that a lot, actually. ...historian or social scientist. I don't know if you'd like to go there, but... Yeah, let's... We could talk about that, then. Now, when you talk about it, I actually really did like that a lot because it's the way people don't view things, right? So when we talk about you view things day to day or just in your small circle, it's hard to get people to view it from that above type of above the earth or however you want to put it. Yeah, right. So when you... um, when you came up with that, I was wondering, so is that how I guess you kind of view yourself is like you're the cosmic historian? Well, I mean, it's a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just lay out the fantasy a little bit. And I definitely identify with this guy. And I call him a guy because because I'm a guy. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I'm imagining that uh, given that there are six billion planets in the Milky Way, and we're just one galaxy among billions, that there are going to be a lot of different cases out there of, you know, Life is going to emerge on various planets. And unless, you know, the planet gets destroyed, I think, you know, it's going to happen with some frequency that that eventually you're going to get to the point where there's a a creature that, like us, that's got the brains, creativity, that uh, they're going to be able to start inventing their own way of life, you know, instead of gathering stuff 
that nature provides spontaneously, they're going to start planting it, you know, get their gardens or even, you know, fields or something. Instead of hunting other creatures in that ecosystem, they're going to start gathering those people, those animals together and making pens to or or herding them, you know, like sheep or goats or or reindeer, you know, yeah. whatever it is, you know, the the equivalent on these other planets. They're gonna, so there's gonna have, they're gonna start on the path that I, that I can see. That's inventing their own way of life. That's that's embarking on the path of civilization. And and I think once you do that, there's no stopping it. There's all kinds of other things that become possible. You know, you can produce more food, have bigger populations, control more territory, develop different kinds of political systems. Uh, new technologies of all kinds, you're on your way, you know. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of different places in this vast cosmos, just mind-blowingly vast. I mean, are you following this? Uh, yeah, no, I am. You know, how, how, you know 186,000 miles a second, and they're looking at light from that's been traveling at that speed for, you know, almost 13 billion years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't stand it, you know. I know. My head explodes. But anyway. So I'm imagining this uh, this cosmic historian that's somehow has access to what happened in all these different cases or enough different cases to to do a comparative study comparative between the the creatures who embarked on the path reached the point where they could destroy themselves had to put their civilization in good enough order soon enough to avoid destroying themselves and those that didn't manage to do it. And I figure, well, there's going to be a lot of examples, and there's going to be a lot of examples of both kinds, because I think that if it's a toss-up with human beings and human civilization, it's probably going to be close to a toss-up or something like a toss-up. There's going to be plenty of cases of success and plenty of cases of failure. So my cosmic historian delves into this body of cases, does deep thinking about the history of each one, does some statistical analyses, and he comes forward with some conclusions. And the, the three conclusions that I present, one is the sooner the creature recognized that they did face such a challenge to order their civilization well enough, soon enough to avoid destroying themselves, the sooner they recognize that that's what stepping onto that path to civilization was inevitably going to require, the sooner they recognize it, the more likely they were to survive for the long haul. The second finding was, the sooner they start working to take steps to meet that challenge, the more likely they were to survive. On the other hand, the failures were more likely to just deal with their immediate problems and sort of back into the future. Let the future take care of itself. We'll muddle through. Well, the people who let the future take care of themselves turned out not to have much of a future. That's what, I mean, of course, this is a fantasy. I, I don't have any evidence, but I think it makes sense. How could it not be true? A lot of the things I believe, I, I've subjected to that. Well, how could it not be true? You know, and I, I look for ways for it not to be true, and I don't come up with them, and I say, I think it's true. <laughs> well, <laughs> the possibility is just... There's endless possibility to having life somewhere else. So you have to figure somewhere because you could look at it. It's almost in two ways, but it works both ways. It's like 
then this kind of goes to your point of loving this little, you know, blue and green ball that goes around the sun is like to have everything that we needed to make and sustain life was just so incredible. You know, when you when you actually sit down and boil it down, everything that had to go right and we're all here. Are you talking about like civilization or just life on earth? A life on earth, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it seems like, wow, that was almost impossible when you look at the odds. But then you take a universe that's never ending and well, you have. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the other thing we don't really know. It's but, pretty big anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one. Uh, that's another thing that confuses yeah. me. Cause it's, but yeah, now all of a sudden it's the flip side, right? Because it's, it's unlimited possibilities of them but we've got this one planet oh yeah but that's yeah and i'm using the uh, the cosmic historian to bring into a clearer relief the nature of our situation that it was inevitable that it's part of the that we're born into we take for granted i mean it was a long time that i was alive on this planet before i realized wow it wasn't always like this yeah my father had a book this is like in the early 50s and i pulled it off the shelf. Man's role in changing the face of the earth. And I had lots of pictures and text and stuff like that. And I read it. If you go back 20,000 years, you've got a planet. It's very different from this because we've taken over to a large extent. You know, I, I don't know if this is where to, where to go, but going back to the question, how much do we care whether human civilization survives? What could have happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis? I don't know. It might have destroyed all of life on earth. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but let's just say that we could do something of the magnitude of what happened 66 million years ago when the asteroid slammed into the planet. Apparently, it took a few million years for the Earth to recover. We had ancestors that were, I guess, uh, nothing like us, that crept out from their burrows or something and led to the mammalian takeover. If if we do blow it to that extent, life will probably, you know, if, if it's of that magnitude, life recovered, life would recover, we would have something different. But wouldn't wouldn't there something precious have been lost, even if life on Earth were to recover? And there would be no consciousness. Yeah. The thinking that we do, the creating that we do. The, the loves that we feel, the relationships that we build, the families that we have. We're the creatures that built that web telescope. Yeah. And we're able to contemplate this incredible, incomprehensible, well, not fully incomprehensible, creation. Isn't that a major loss that we should avoid? Yeah, definitely. But that takes changing the society, or I guess the the way society the way the hierarchy is in society. Well, cha- we have to change the, the global civilization. Correct. It's got to be a whole... It's a global problem. Yeah, yeah it is. And we don't think that way. The, going back to fascism, I mean, listening to the need to have an us against them, the unwillingness to embrace, very different from the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. It's against a lot of what you see in the religious teachings. Yeah. Um, when you get to the core of, of what that all is. You know, when you said us versus them, I think the last time we talked and I was I was researching a little more on polarization and one of the things that came up and they haven't really studied it to know. They said there's no definitive proof, but one of the things they said about Americans was that we didn't have a real external threat and 
it might have helped bring about the age that we're in. You know, we didn't have the Russians anymore. We weren't worried about the Cold War. Before that, we were worried about, you know, the Nazis or... I, yeah, I, I see where you're going. Mm -hmm. So if there was a way to make people see, I mean, we have climate change, which would be a global threat, but people don't really buy. There's some people who buy into it and some who don't. Unless you have the world looking at this threat. I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we need, there was an idea that we need something to bring us all together, a threat of some kind. Well, I had an association as you were talking. I, I think this is a relevant uh, place to go. Um, back in the 1980s, I was part of a group. It, it was a group consisting of um, people in the, in, in the foreign service world, State Department types, plus uh, psychiatry, names you might have heard of, names you wouldn't have heard of, trying to find ways of building bridges to bring the Cold War safely to an end, meeting in places like Esalen in California, if you know what that is, mm -hmm. but not only in places like that. Anyway, I was part of that group uh, because I had written The Parable of the Tribes and then had a book come out called Out of Weakness, Healing the Wounds that Drive Us to War which we haven't talked about, but you know, that's another conversation. But some people in the group, as the Cold War was winding down, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down and uh, Gorbachev and Reagan meet in Iceland. And, you know, it was a very uh, encouraging time. And the question arose, <laughs> you, you say we didn't, have, well, what are we going to do when we don't have an external enemy? Is, is, is what I think you were just yes. saying. And the question arose, how, how many Americans are going to need to have an enemy? And, you know, I, I don't know that we resolved what that question, that question, but here we have Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich entering into the scene and working to provide that enemy yeah. to a lot of people, you know, liberals, you know. Yeah. So when you get into, well, why would people need an enemy? My answer to that question in that book that came out from Bantam Books in 1988, Out of Weakness, you know, um, and, and you get there into ways in which people are brought up in families that make it difficult to integrate the various parts of oneself. So the healing of the world is not something which happens only at the level that I talk about in this fate of human civilization, where I talk about how do we reorganize so that the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of thing doesn't happen, and how do we organize civilization so that our means of satisfying our own economic wants are harmonious with the needs of the rest of life on Earth. You know, there's that level, but it, it's on every level. All kinds of levels, including bringing up children so that they need enemies in order to deal with the conflicts that, uh, that are not resolvable within the family, not resolvable in terms of what they've internalized from the family and what they feel uh, from the core of their being. The whole system is marbled with brokenness that needs to be healed. And so... The whole thing is on the table to be made more whole. So that's a – it's so tough though. What what would heal all of that? You know, that that's the question that's tough to answer. It's like what 
what healing could we do, not just in ourselves, but then society and then the world? Well, I, I have people in my family who are clinical psychologists, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're in the business of healing at a certain level. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it, one of the things, I had another book called uh, Sowings and Reapings, uh, The Cycling of Good and Evil in the Human System. Uh, it's a kind of a minor book, but I, I talk a lot there about how people who were abused as children often, but not always, end up being child abusers themselves when they become parents. So, but not always. So there's helping people who have internalized something which, you know, people who will say, I didn't want to be like my father, but here I am doing the same thing he did to me. So there are interventions that can be made on a person-by-person basis. My brother deals with, uh, as a clinical psychologist, with, with trauma. Yeah. If you Google, you know, Schmuckler and Bosnian rape camps, he wrote a manual to how to heal people who have been through that kind of a trauma. He works with people who have been through terrible things in their family of origin. And it's not like people get made completely whole, but healing can take place. Yeah. So I, I love psychology. And I think one of the sins in this country is mental health is so hard to get. And I think especially for young people, I think people younger, I am, I am one of those people who thinks almost everybody should go to therapy. Because if you can understand yourself and understand the way you act, if you can resolve trauma, and by, by trauma, I don't mean it has to be something like those those Bosnian rape victims you're talking about. A lot of people, I think a lot of your actions are determined by some kind of trauma that you had or foresaw or, or saw coming. You know, a lot of this is protectionism, whether it be there was a feeling Self, of kids Self-protection, you, you mean? Yeah, and a lot of your actions are, are a result of that, with, probably from youth, right? Unless you have a really, really huge traumatic event like going to war or being you know, mugged or something like that, that that might change you later on. But a lot of your, a lot of your feelings and emotions come from, I think you were a child and you just didn't know how to deal with it. A lot of that stuff stays with you through life. So I always think the mental health aspect is such a huge piece of the puzzle to fixing what's wrong with, with humanity, if that makes sense. It's, it has to be seen holistically. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. You know, if, if you, analyze, say, where does white supremacy come from? You, I, I think that the, the root of the brokenness, um, well, like in, in the piece that's coming up, it's systemic. It's got to do with power and the problems that surround power from the beginnings of civilization. And you end up with people who are, um, who are exploited, who are injured, who are manipulated, who are who are wounded themselves and who then in their families act from their wounds. I, th- I think of a Chekhov story mm-hmm. in which um, a, a man is, is abused in the outer, out, in the world outside in a way that probably has happened in Russia and everywhere else yeah. again and again. And he comes home and he, I don't know if he, I remember, he kicks the dog or he hits the kid. People say, well, you know, peace begins with uh, making oneself more whole. Well, it begins everywhere. The whole thing has to be dealt with as a whole. And everybody can find a niche 
that uses their gifts for helping the world to become more whole, whether it's my brother who works with these people who have been wounded in their families, or whether it's me who tries to look at the big picture and says, this is what uh, something that we're not looking at that we need to look at, or somebody who knocks door to door to get people to use their votes to vote for people who are trying to make something constructive happen rather than somebody who will work to assist a destructive force that's arisen in our country. All of those things are relevant to the question of whether human civilization will survive and thrive in the coming generations or centuries, or whether we'll destroy ourselves and bring down much of life on earth with us. Everybody should find some place where they can put their shoulder to the wheel most effectively. That reminds me of um, something I read. I think I read or maybe I heard or I saw it somewhere, but you said the ugliness we see in human history is not human nature writ large. Yeah, I'm, I'm big on that. Yeah. That, actually, that actually is the title of the next piece. That's my, my Carney Barker way of getting people to come into the tent. If you'll come into the tent, I'll prove why that's true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing about what I prove is true is it takes a little bit of work to see the proof. I've got some steps you got to take. But the Carney Barker says the ugliness you, we see in human history is not human nature writ large. That beautiful Christian that I ran across in the mountains of Western North Carolina, that beauty, I think, is more fundamental to who he is than what he's been manipulated into supporting. Yeah, it's true. The, there's so many people out there, when you get to know them at a different level, who don't agree with you maybe in certain aspects like how to live or politically but at the end of the day when it comes down to it most people want to help the other person out yeah i i live in trump country yeah that's where i ran for congress i have almost a sense of there being a module that there's a politics module that's been planted in their heads that supersedes the rest of them that almost like, a, I don't know if you ever saw the Manchurian candidate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the uh, uh, I like the um, Frank Sinatra version more than the Denzel Washington version. Uh, which one do you do you know? Um, actually, I think I've seen the, was it the Sinatra one? Yeah, when Sinatra. We were young, when Paul I was Harvey. really young, my, my parents used to love to watch yeah. the movies for that. So, yeah. I, I but, know that the, you know, the... the, the there's this line that the uh, they've been brainwashed literally uh, by the Chinese uh, who captured them in Korea, and, and if somebody says uh, in his presence, "How about we play a little solitaire?" <laughs> or something like that. That's not quite the line, but it's basically, and he he enters into a trance state. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, somebody either he takes out a deck of cards or he starts. Uh, and then when the queen, queen of hearts shows up, the next thing that somebody says to do, he is, uh, by hypnotic suggestion, required to do it. Mm-hmm. So in the scene, uh, somebody just says, ah, go jump in a lake. You know, which is a, you know, expression I, you don't hear anymore, I guess, in American culture, but 
it used to mean, I don't know what it, what the equivalent would be now. But back in the 50s, that was, ah, go jump in the lake, like, oh, go take a flying whatever yeah. at the moon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he, uh, so Paul Harvey, or not Paul Harvey, Lawrence Harvey, uh, the actor, gets up from the bar, walks outside, walks straight to a, a, a nearby lake and jumps into it. So I, I almost think that there's like a module that certain, I mean, it's not that extreme, but when it comes to the realm of power, there are certain things that they have been programmed to jump on board. In the South, during the lead up to the Civil War, it was things having to do with, you know, Southern honor and Nobody can institute, insult our precious institutions of slavery or whatever. You know, they, you could, you could get good Christians to lynch black people. Yeah. And you could get them to fight for an institution that was really contrary to their interests. Yeah. Made them have to compete against slave labor, which kept them poorer than their equivalent Ameri white Americans in the North. Anyway. There's a lot of places you can look and see that people in our country right now, the good people that I live among who are great neighbors and many, you know, many of them. And I did radio shows with them and loved them back in the nineties. There's a module that's been planted. It turns them into some other kind of a person. Yeah. Yeah. That's and the ugliness that you see in them is not human nature writ large. It's something that's been programmed in that makes them behave in ugly ways in the power system. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that because a lot of people would judge somebody based on some of the things you're mentioning, right? So maybe your whatever your religion is or your political affiliation, but something will happen that shows their human side and and you feel differently about that person if you don't know them, you know? So – you see that a lot, but um, in the case of the South or anywhere else, it's it, when you're saying that, I guess that Manchurian candidate, that little bug in their brain, that's something that develops from youth. You know, it's just instilled in you over well, and over and over again. And well, yeah, the pattern was put in, in, as I understand it. I mean, I never lived below the Mason-Dixon line between yeah, before 1992, but I've been. I've been here for a long time now, and I studied the, the build-up to the Civil War quite extensively. I mean, a lot of people are interested in the battles, and I am too. You know, Gettysburg and, you know, Vicksburg and all those things, really fascinating stuff. Yeah. But the really fascinating stuff to me is the 1850s and how South got readied for it. The, the people that I talked with on the radio, mm -hmm. I, I did see some of what had been enculturated into them having to do with why it is that the schools around here are named after Confederate generals and the highways are named after Confederate generals Yeah. or Jefferson Davis, you know, a guy who led them into a terrible disaster. And yet he's a big hero. I, I, I saw that stuff, but I saw a lot of other stuff that was more accessible in terms of being able to talk about the values that they've betrayed since then. 
So I see a transformation having taken place. You say that they, that programming takes place uh, in their youth, and I think that's entirely true. I think that their their relationship to authority in, in their families and in their schools yeah. and with respect to these Confederate heroes mm-hmm. all got enculturated early on, but it got exploited. Back in the 90s, they would not have marched to the drummer of Donald Trump. That's very true. They, they would have been repelled yeah. by a guy who violated all kinds of values that they had articulated to me in various contexts that I really respected. So people are a mixture of constructive and destructive elements. Yeah. And the balance of power between those elements can be shifted. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. that and that's right. what's happened to this whole country, that destructive elements that were there all along, you can trace back white supremacy. It never disappeared. You can trace back the greed you know, of corporate America. It never disappeared. But the proportions get changed. Mm-hmm. I would argue that it's also different living through it than reading it. When you read about white supremacy and slavery, you know, it's it's kind of there in black and white and in context. But the people living at the time because of what they were indoctrinated into or just what they saw didn't see it as this moral abyss that, you know, we see it as today. Sometimes I don't think we see what's going on. It's like the Nazis brainwashing a whole civilization over there in a matter of years. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm following you. Okay, you say, I don't think we see what's going on. No, well, I'm Expand saying... Expand on that. I'm not, I'm not following you. You know, I, I call what's happening now in politics with what I see the Republicans doing, like a slow-moving coup. On paper, if you read this 20 years down the line, you could see what was happening and what was building up. Living through it day to day, you don't always see that. So to somebody today, they're not seeing how destructive and how ugly maybe certain beliefs or certain actions are. Because they're you mean their own beliefs and actions? Correct. Or do you mean other people? Well, I mean, it could be both. It could be both. Because I know plenty of people who might not be party to... I'll just say Republicans or Democrats, but they won't see the faults in them or they don't see it as they they see something like you and me are talking about as being alarmist. Whereas I think you could draw a a pretty basic line from what you're saying, like the 90s to now. Well, and I did. Yeah. One of the gratifications, uh, such as it is, uh, is that people who used to call me alarmist now call me prescient, you know, back in the 90s. I was concerned about the poisoning of the American mind Yeah. by Rush Limbaugh. I didn't immediately see Newt Gingrich in that, but I saw Limbaugh. I, I did everything I could to get a big platform for mm-hmm. myself on radio. I mean, I had some platform, but I was wanting to go up against him in a, in a uh, not like a, a left-wing version of him, but instead of propaganda, genuine inquiry and integrity and mutual respect and stuff like that. Um, bringing people together, searching for the truth. That's what the opposite of Limbaugh was to me. And I, I would encounter liberal gatekeepers. And I'd say, this is what I see going on. And they say, well, Rush Limbaugh's audience doesn't, isn't our concern. 
And you know, I said, well, we're living in the same country as they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the poisoned mines aren't aren't in our interest. I think you know. You, I think you and I have talked about the aspects of liberal America that got in the way. Yep. Yeah, and it wasn't until 2004 that I saw that it was much bigger than I imagined before. That W's presidency, uh, Karl Rove being his brain, mm-hmm. um, had taken it to a bigger stage, and I was considered alarmist. But you know, my business has been seeing the forces at work. You know, 1970 made me think in terms of systemic forces. And after 30 years of doing that, I was ready to raise the alarm. And that's what I did. That was what I was getting to at that point was, I think, maybe now not so much. I think a lot of people are actually alarmed. But um, yeah, it, it doesn't. I'm not in the same position myself anymore. Yeah, I think 10, 15, I would have been one of those people, I'll be honest, 15, even when W was president or, or whatnot, where it's like, yeah, it's, it's, there's some things that are not good, but you know it the the pendulum swings and it goes back we don't have to worry and yeah and uh, i think that's a, the position a lot of people take and like i said it's it's probably changed today i think a lot of people are very very concerned but we're at a point where it's they, they don't know what to do about it and yeah who who knew that we would <laughs> have you seen the ad that uh, dick cheney has made for his daughter no i haven't seen that well, I recommend it. I mean, I'll have to check it out. You know, Dick Cheney was the Darth Vader of that era to many people. Yeah. Um, you know, he, you can look, you can point to a lot of things about. Um, I would argue he's the what? emperor, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, who who would have thought that Liz Cheney would be the the hero of our times? I I think about that a lot. Um, and, and yeah, I think about and, that a lot. You know, and Dick Cheney, um, Dick Cheney was one of the people who manifested a lot of the scary forces at work, the mm-hmm. arrogance. He, he drove us into a war that was based, that we lie, got lied into. Yep. Uh, the way he, he made torture uh, something that was uh, proved at the highest levels, the way he wanted to use military forces to arrest uh, American civilians in the Buffalo case. I mean, there was a lot of stuff coming out of Dick Cheney that presaged a breakdown of American constitutional order in the direction of fascism. Yeah. Yet, from his point of view, I'm sure that he would say, well, there are lines I would not have crossed. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. But he, he was breaking down other lines. And here's his daughter who says, you know, I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And damn it, that oath is worth more to me than my political career. You know, you people are weird things. But when you look at it systemically, W comes across these days as a decent guy. I was going to say, yeah. Um, But he was... He put, surrounded himself with Karl Rove and Dick Cheney, which was a real mistake to do if you really want to defend the constitutional order. But he didn't see exactly what he was doing. Dick Cheney didn't see that he was leading us in the direction of Donald Trump, but he was. Right. But, you know, if you look at things in systemic terms, you see that if you want a civilization that's going to survive, you got to see the picture 
in the big, in, in, in the large, where the brokenness, the ugliness, even in Dick Cheney, has to be seen as part of a larger force that he's not necessarily cognizant of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that yeah. was fun for me. I hope it was worth No, it was. Actually, <laughs> I was going to bring up that W... W got so so much rehabilitation thanks to Trump. People who 10, 15 years ago would you know went into the White House and just dragged him out of it have spoken praises about him. And I've heard him talk a lot about basically against Trump. There's a speech he was talking about nationalism and and all kinds of stuff. But it was it was aimed at Trump and that that he saw a rise in that. And then you know he got a lot of praise from liberal America for talking about domestic terrorism where he was talking about january 6th basically i think he said something at the 9-11 memorial he he, take a look at the 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 video he made for an ad for his his daughter yeah now i'm not a a believing christian but uh, you know i'm 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 pretty about knowledgeable about the bible old and new testament Mm -hmm. and the line that jesus speaks on the on the cross is forgive them father they know not what they do yeah, and I, and I've asked a Christian friend of mine. Do you think that when he said that 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 he he was saying that they don't know how wrong it is to do what they did to me to any human being, or does he mean they don't know who I am, and uh, therefore they don't know what they're doing? Uh, I like to think it's the first. Yeah, um, I would think. But so. But I, I don't really. Yeah, I don't know. But I think that a lot of people are in that position that in this broken world or as the biblical types have liked to call it, the fallen world that we're in, that the whole world is marbled with this force of brokenness that we've unleashed, and that we're all of us, to one extent or another, carriers of that brokenness. And Dick Cheney probably thought he was being a good patriotic American while he was breaking things down and preparing the way for Donald Trump and and the rise of something more fascistic than what he was willing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I, I just think that, um, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, covers a lot of stuff. Yeah, I would agree. Maybe we can call it, call it a day with that. What I was going to say that's a good way to end it. Um, <laughs> So if you want to, um, you know, I don't know if you want to plug anything that you got coming out or, you well, know, the web. On Three Quarks Daily, if you read the piece that we've been discussing, though, we've departed from it, uh, I hope in constructive ways. I think so. Uh, um, uh, the fate of human civilization. And I've been working for years of finding ways of conveying what I saw on that day in a moment to change my life. You know, I listen to Spotify and I think about the music and, and these great songs that some people have composed, like the Beatles and mm-hmm. all the covers that various songs have got. That You know, there's a piece of music, you know, like a bridge over troubled waters. And then there are all these other musicians that have taken it or, or like L- uh, Leonard Cohen write this hallelujah. And what are there, 200 and some ways of, anyway, other people yeah. aren't writing covers from what I show about how the ugliness we see in human history is not human nature writ large. But I'm doing covers. I'm doing various ways of doing it. And I invite people to check it out. Try it on. Yeah. I think There's that's something. 
There's something there that illuminates a lot and changes how we look at ourselves as a species and how we look at the challenges that we face. Yeah, I'd argue that we're all covers trying to uh, make better what the last generation did. Doesn't always work, but that's where we are. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I will talk to you soon, so I know you'll be back. All right, great. All right, thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Support.